Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined with my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. Hey, Jacob. Good to see you. It's good to see you as well, Dayton. Thank you again for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. Today's topic is cyber counterintelligence. Cyber counterintelligence. What is it? How does it work? And why is it important? Well, we'll begin by asking, what's counterintelligence? The word counterintelligence has become part and parcel with the news. Think of it as anti-spying. Operations that prevent, deter, defeat, or manipulate the adversary from conducting intelligence operations on you is counterintelligence. For example, Jacob, imagine that you have some really nosy neighbors. Building a fence around your house could be counterintelligence. Or maybe strategically placing cardboard cutouts of yourself around your house could be counterintelligence. I just generally have cardboard cutouts around my house. Or maybe even sneaking into their house to steal their binoculars so they can't watch you could be counterintelligence. Now, these examples may seem like a bit extreme when it's your neighbors, but uh, on a global scale, governments and companies conduct counterintelligence operations all the time. And it goes without saying, because you're listening to a cybersecurity podcast, that counterintelligence is hugely important to the cyber world. In 2017, the French presidential election between centrist Emmanuel Macron and National Front candidate Marine Le Pen. How's my French? It's Front National, but you know. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. Was rocked by a massive data breach just two days before the vote. Nine gigabytes of Macron campaign emails were leaked online, linking Macron to election fraud and tax evasion. But, months before the election, the Macron campaign, privy to the risk of a data leak, stored and analyzed dozens of suspected phishing emails sent to campaign staffers. But we're not talking about deep sea phishing. We're talking about spear phishing. Jacob, what's spear phishing? Well, phishing is defined as the fraudulent practice of sending emails purporting to be from a reputable company or individual to try to reveal personal information about yourself, maybe get your password, or, you know, send malware into your computer. Spear phishing is a little bit more precise in that it is targeting a specific individual. Most phishing is just sent out to mass quantities of people, but spear phishing has specific targets in mind. In this particular instance, through help by an independent Japanese security firm, they were able to find these phishing attempts were identical to the ones used by the Russian hacking group Fancy Bear, who also famously leaked the controversial DNC emails in 2016. Now this is where it gets interesting. The Macron campaign intentionally responded to the emails, feeding hackers false information, which both consumed the time and energy of hackers, while also making the claims easily debunked by Macron. Days later, the leaks had reportedly little impact on the election, and Macron won by a landslide. That's wild. And this really enforces the idea of action and reaction. In a cyberspace environment, a counterintelligence operator has a huge toolkit to work with, from forensic examinations of information systems, to the penetration of hostile adversaries, to supplying false information to mislead an attacker. CCI, or cyber counterintelligence, is different from other cyber frameworks in that it can be both offensive and defensive. A two-pronged approach allows for CCI strategy that is informed by collection results and strengthened by more operations, using your opponent's information against them. It's like cyber jujitsu. I'm not sure if it's quite that, 
but it definitely is something that melds the domains of human intelligence and also technical intelligence. Yeah, cyber jujitsu. Moving forward, the most challenging yet interesting component of cyber counterintelligence is this idea of attribution and accountability. Now, what does that even mean? Yes. What does it mean, Jacob? <laughs> attribution is essentially figuring out who you're dealing with. It's generally pretty hard in the real world to ha- go to war with somebody without knowing their identity or intentions. However, in the cyber arena, that is not the case. In the French example, the Macron campaign staff did not at first know who was sending these phishing emails. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, tell me a little bit about attribution and accountability. Why is that important? Well, in the idea of counterintelligence, knowing who is the person behind the breach and specifically what they're seeking to do is, is basically crucial to what's going on. I mean, you could be getting a ransomware attack, which is where someone is going to encrypt all the data of of your computer, basically making it unusable. But if you don't really have an idea of who's doing it and what their intention is, you know, you you don't, you don't really know what's going to be happening in the future. Is it a terrorist who is trying to stop you from accessing your own files? Maybe it's just someone trying to extort you for money. Maybe it's a former significant other of yours who has decided to take revenge out on you and has now encrypted your files. Mm. It could be any number of these people. And determining who it is becomes a a big deal, especially once we get into the idea of jurisdiction, as we will soon discover. Let's say that you have a business Mm -hmm. and some foreign power has infiltrated your business, stolen a whole bunch of your business secrets, and are now using them against you. What do you do? You know, it's a really difficult question. You know, you're probably going to have to alert the authorities because, frankly, it's a foreign entity and it's quickly going to be out of your jurisdiction. You know, you can't go starting international conflicts just because... You know, you've been attacked by the Russians, unfortunately. Right, right. And this same exact thing happened in 2015 in the Obama administration. Do you remember the Sony breach? Is that what you're referring to? Oh, the Sony breach. Uh, Also, there's a whole bunch of high-profile Chinese hacks into American corporations. Also, we can't forget the OPM hack as well. Of course. Um, And instead of doing a hack back, or at least as far as we know, one of the approaches the Obama administration took was signing a diplomatic accord with the Chinese. And computer experts have found that since that diplomatic accord, uh, corporate hacks by the Chinese have gone down. So it seems that there's more an edge of this than just the cyber edge of it, the technical edge of it. There's also a diplomatic political edge of it as well, in that changing behaviors can change other states' behaviors. It's wielding soft power. Yeah, this is the idea that we really want to sell you on in this podcast, is that cybersecurity is not its own thing. It's not a tit-for-tat kind of a deal. It's not all it's not all stuck in the technical domain. It is very much something that is integrated into the regular political discourse of life, and its solutions might not always be a technical one. Additionally, in this particular episode, we're hoping to cover a brief description about the recent hack that might be on your mind, that of Meltdown. You've probably heard about it in the news, and you're curious about what it's about. It involves a lot of words that you probably don't understand about aspects of computers you might not know anything about. This week, we're going to be trying to work back through a hack to try to identify who a culprit is and possibly their intentions. To do this, I'm consulting with my guest. Hi, I'm Fong Wen. I'm a a manager at Ernst & Young, uh, focusing on assurance services that deal with the breach response, uh, information governance, and insider threat. Also, I'm an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies, uh, focusing on a cybersecurity certificate program where I teach two courses in managing security and leadership and strategy in cybersecurity. Well, thank you for joining me. All right, well, let's jump off. First question I had for you is, when you're working back from a cyber breach, what are you looking for to indicate a culprit or how the breach was achieved? Sure, no, great question. Um, 
there's many ways to go about it and uh, from a high level and I'll, I'll dig deep as, as we progress, but we, we look at all the uh, indicators of compromise of, of that had caused the breach. So traditionally that will look at the t- technical aspects of how they broke in. Uh, for, for this purpose, we'll talk about maybe a spear phishing event happening at this company or the government in, in, in any case. And from that email, we'll see how that spear phishing was crafted, uh, who it was targeted to, um, and then the characteristics of that spearfish, right? And so from email address to how tailored it was to the target audience, um, and then what malware was attached to it, and all that, all those things, type attachment and uh, the files and stuff and hashes and, and, and whatnot. That tends to lead to other uh, indicators of compromise that we, we tend to peel back and look for those attributes uh, across the environment. Uh, so from an adversary's perspective, we, we want to understand, are they, once they broke in, are they trying to move laterally within the environment? And what, how are they doing that? Because there will be forensics trail logging data that will help us understand, okay, they moved uh, across the environment. Uh, did they try to create accounts and, uh, and escalate those privileges? And those, all those pieces are tied together from, from a corporate standpoint. You, know, you get to see internally all those things and, and look back on that. From the government aspect and from my previous role uh, working for the Director of National Intelligence and specifically the National Counterintelligence Executive, we looked at more of the motivations behind those, act, uh, those actions, right? So this came to more light uh, from, for the public in the sense of the, the annual espionage report that gets pushed out, highlighting the threats from various countries. Uh, and then that followed up with uh, the Mandiant report of talking about APT, Advanced Persistent Threat 1. Um, and that kind of highlighted the fact that when you're, you're trying to get attribution, it's difficult. From a private sector, you really can't, you don't have much capability outside of your network, right? But from the government standpoint and an intelligence community standpoint, we have a little more uh, uh, capabilities that reach a little bit farther because of, you know, national security capabilities. And then that goes into understanding the severity of what's going on. In essence, it's one thing for you to be compromised from not doing good patching or a known vulnerability that you didn't really have a good uh, uh, visibility on, but they exposed it and, and, and broke into your network, and they didn't really do much in there. But the other aspect is if they're tailoring malware to compromise your specific network, if you're finding out that, again, that it was highlighted in APT1, that it's a military organization that's actually going after your networks, those kind of heighten the, the, the interest of uh, how we perceive the threat and understanding what they're going for. And maybe you may need to encourage better cybersecurity hygiene uh, posture and enable your partnerships with either the federal government that have those capabilities and build those type of relationships uh, as you move forward. So at the, at the end, you know, we're really trying to look at it from a holistic standpoint and leveraging what people process and technologies are in place now and where those deficiencies are, and then heighten those awareness to make sure you shore up those capabilities to, to meet the, the threat as best you can. It's interesting that there's kind of like a melding of like a human intelligence aspect, kind of like the psychology of the hack itself. Yep in order to really trace it back. That's, that's pretty fascinating that it's not just a technical component. Um, another aspect of this is when you're doing this trace back, you know, how, how, how much of an issue is it with jurisdictions? I mean, quickly, it's pretty easy to, for it to become something that's out of the country. How do, you, uh, how do you handle that? Or how often are these problems? 
it's usually the norm. So traditionally, you know, it'd be ideal if the adversary was like, hey, I'm coming from this IP and I'm just going to come from this IP and attack your, your network. But usually they go through a couple proxies that, again, go into your jurisdiction question of how do um, we do deal with that. So from a national security lens um, in my prior role, we got to leverage a lot of good uh, counterintelligence capabilities to understand where are they actually coming from? And that's not just a trace back, okay, do all the hot points, but understanding, you know, you can only see how far you can see uh, unless you can get other capabilities uh, from uh, the wide breadth of the U.S. government, which is great. But those are strictly meant for law enforcement and counterintelligence elements to do, right? This is not meant for uh, um, private, private entities. <laughs> private yeah. entities. Just go back and start being, uh, you know, cyber detectives and, and then now start, uh, uh, you know, fishing back or, or um, looking back into networks that are foreign and, and uh, potentially causing uh, international issues uh, when you're just, you know, when you shouldn't be doing those aspects. So that's where I kind of highlight the aspect of knowing your partners in this in this wonderful world of cybersecurity, uh, leveraging those partnerships uh, as needed and as appropriate, right? You don't want to call the Bureau or um, the, a NIST or uh, U.S. CERT for every little cyber incident, right? Uh, especially when you do the forensics on a lot of these, sad to say, it's just poor cybersecurity hygiene. Um, so you want to shore up that aspect of it. But when you go in the traceback, you know, from a private ent- uh, perspective, you know, you kind of have to, you, there's limited capabilities you have, uh, and legally you can't really do much, so you have to leverage those partnerships. From a counterintelligence and, and intelligence community lens, there's a lot of authorities that can be leveraged, and, and that's my prior experience uh, in, in the Air Force and, and then working on the national security scene is you leverage all those capabilities depending on what authority, other you know, statutes that you uh, – under U.S. Code 10, which is uh, wartime, and U.S. Code 50, which is intelligence operations – you kind of understand what capabilities do you need to leverage, what legally can you do with the le- lawyer support, and then you leverage those to understand the pervasiveness of the actor um, and understanding, okay, as I kind of mentioned before, is this really a state-sponsored activity against us? And if that is the case, then you, you, you try to act in kind. Now, if it's just some somebody that exposed the network because you're not doing right cyber security hygiene and they're not really targeting anything of really sensitive uh, uh, value, then, okay, you, you, you respond appropriate to that. But, again, uh, inversely speaking, or if it's more difficult uh, to adversary, then that's where you have to leverage your partnerships. Well, that's good. You actually answered my follow-up question <laughs> there, so that's excellent. So following up on something you were saying before about, you know, private entities, you know, pursuing this, just as an idea, you know, the idea of hackbacks, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as the name would imply, obviously, you know, you're hacking back. It could be, it could take, you know, an aggressive form. It could take a reconnaissance form. You know, in your experience, have you, has this really been used and is it an effective tool if it is used? Generally speaking and legally speaking, hackbacks are not appropriate for uh, private sector or uh, commercial clients to do. Um, again, this, this really goes into unintended consequences. Really, what are you hacking back into? From a cybersecurity perspective, you really do not know what infrastructure they're using against you. So to, to kind of dive into the f- aspect of trying to hack back is what are you really hacking back into? And mm-hmm. without that, without all those unknowns, um, you don't want to go down that path. And your legal team probably would not support that as well from a private perspective. Now, from a government side, as I can, uh, you know, kind of doing my dual hat here and I'm leveraging uh, or pulling from my past experience, 
it's we can do a lot of different things, you know, from counterintelligence and uh, DOD and law enforcement. There's many different ways we can kind of defend ourselves. Again, as I said, mentioned from a private commercial aspect, that I would not leverage that. I would really encourage, uh, and this is what I do in, in the class and with my with my clients, is making sure you have very good posture. Your cybersecurity posture is sound as possible and leveraging the people processes and technologies to defend not only against external threats, but internal threats, as, as I mentioned before. You, doing that is the right approach. Now thinking, okay, I know in a traditional and psychological aspect, you know this adversary just hits you in the face, you wanna hit them back, right? So that kind of moving that to the cyber domain, it's uh, not that easy. It's against the law, and uh, you really don't know what you're going against and um, the unintended consequences of hacking back to a proxy or an IP that you think they're originated from, but really they didn't, and it's really just a proxy. And an yeah, it could unwitting. be somebody else's computer that you're not hurting. Yeah, exactly. And I think some examples are out there that, you know, when they try to understand where the adversary is coming from, it was coming from like a school hmm. or a hospital. Hmm. And imagine you sent something back to those, those networks. Again, they didn't have very good cybersecurity posture, but they were unwitting proxy that is not needed to right. you know, take, be taken down or whatnot. The actors who are usually, you know, you're engaged at, engaged with, with uh, counterintelligence, um, who, who are generally those actors just in like vague terms? For for the purposes of education, obviously it was pointed out in our um, in the national uh, security uh, realm that the main actors are kind of the common ones, you know, China, Russia, uh, big name countries, um, and even uh, partners that we do have uh, that we think are friendly, but again, they have sophisticated cyber capabilities um, in in like France or Israel. Mm-hmm. Again, those are those are kind of generally, but again, it's not so much of those countries are bad, you know, don't work with them. Obviously, the, the work of uh, global economy, you have to work with them. But the idea is if you're going to work with high threat countries that are identified by the, the Department of State, in essence, or through the economic espionage reports uh, that are publicly available, then you should have some sort of cyber security posture that is uh, that can support a better defense against potential issues arising working with these type of partners. Uh, so... And it goes into also, are you looking internally too? Uh, I think it was mentioned in the previous podcast that you have to look internal too, because those are kind of the biggest, we're finding more and more stories about, you know, people with trusted access that tend to go sideways, um, have the biz, uh, the biggest impact to an environment. You know, do your, you know, your, your, your multiple layers of defense from external threats, but also look internally and have those multiple layers of defense internally to, to protect yourself, protect your IP and protect the end user. Cause it doesn't also, as I mentioned from uh, the first question is when an adversary gains access to an environment, they're looking to escalate and compromise other accounts. So they're going to go in and try to do that. And it's not so much to say these trusted people are going, you know, uh, doing something bad, but their accounts have may have been compromised. And so you need to have the internal controls in place that will help you see that. So does, do terrorists play a large role in uh, counterintelligence for cybersecurity? Or are they like more of a smaller actor in the field? No, I, I wouldn't say they're smaller or, uh, or um, equal footing. I would like to, you know, phrase that as more as, Cyber terrorism is a growing thing, and to pigeonhole and say that they're just going to do one type of uh, cap- uh, attack against you, just ransomware, and, and and label that as cyber terrorism, 
is a bit kind of unfair without knowing all the different other variables and play of uh, motivations and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, especially from a target perspective. So if you are a ripe target that has poor cybersecurity defense, a, uh, a hacker, a cyber terrorist, or a nation state is probably going to exploit that. I'm just being, you know, just being honest here. So that is, uh, it's hard to say just cyber terrorists are going to do ransomware. They're going to try to, um, you know, exfil just monetary value because ter- terrorism is, is in essence to strike fear into the, the infrastructure or, or, you know, in, into the, the target uh, person. So from a, a national standpoint, they could be doing some things that could fall into terrorism, but they're just really doing it for national perspective. You know, the, they're they're anti-U.S. or, or whatnot. Yeah, it all ties back into the intent again. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I would, it goes back into having that cybersecurity hygiene that is flexible to to be shored up against the critical systems and aspects of your network, and being able to uh, defend against those things uh, in, in kind, not you know, uh, not to be delayed by the bureaucracy or, um, or, or personalities of your organization, just being able to respond, uh, uh, appropriately as needed for, for ransomware, right. As we, as you highlighted, having good backup process is really the best defense against that. Right. So even if a terrorist goes, cyber terrorist comes in with a, a ransomware, you've defended against it. Now, if someone is just in there to try to uh, get you to pay out a certain sum, then you're defending against that too. It's not a terrorist. It's, it's just some hacker that sees an opportunity. You're defending against that. So I would not obviously understand the threat, but understand that there are good defenses that you can be in place rather than just being uh, pro, uh, reactive to all these things. On the subject of good defenses and jumping back to your comments about like layered defenses, do you think, I mean, as, as somebody who worked in counterintelligence, do you think that perimeter defense, you know, like things that, you know, block attacks from the out, outset is more important? Or do you think that attack detection techniques, you know, when you're um, searching your own network and, and your, your own uh, data, basically, for hints of an intrusion, what, what is going to be more important in the years to come? I think it's going to be a partnership of those things. Um, I think overall, the focus has always been externally which is um, important. I would never take away from that. But the idea that there is no connect with how you look internally uh, is, is where we're moving. Um, and this is, in essence, where we kind of play uh, having a good supply chain asset management approach, a good insider threat program. Uh, again, focusing on controlling those things that you can control, that, that you should control. Again, these are critical assets these are critical users um or sensitive users um there are controls that you can put in place now again you got to manage that with uh with in mind that these are people at the end of the day these are your employees that are trying to do their good work um this is not meant to be big brother you know there's certain scenarios that 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 may apply but you know applying military type approach to the commercial sector is not the 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 way to go i think it's uh, uh building that roadmap building that education um, understanding the threat, understanding that you're here to protect the environment, uh, understanding that you know these controls are not to hinder your business operations, and there's ways to do that. There's not you, there's not so much. Um, some examples I give is, you know, you, you're trying to improve passwords to sensitive accounts. Do you need to make them 20 characters? You know, there's, there's you know multi-factor. You don't need to make it so crazy that you know everyone just 
tries to work around it because it's so cumbersome. <laughs> so it, it, there's just definitely things, but that's knowing your, 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 the culture and your environment and being able to, uh, and, and move the needle in essence to, to improve the, the posture overall. I really like your focus on this, this idea of it, like cybersecurity is not just like this strange technical domain. There's also this human element to it. You know, it's a, I, I appreciate that you've had this focus on it. Uh, on a subject of a recent uh, cybersecurity vulnerability meltdown, you know, a lot of people probably don't understand what it is. It's kind of technically confusing. Can you give a, like a simple explanation about what the security issue is and how it might affect an everyday person? Sure, sure. Um, happy to do that. Um, meltdown, again, it's, it's in the news, and I'm glad that we're, we're speaking to it because I, I deal with this with the, my clients. And uh, actually, I just finished a course that talked about meltdown in essence. And for the general audience, meltdown is a vulnerability that was found in the hardware, in the Intel hardware, that if ex- ex- exposed or uh, um, exploited, um, would gain, allow the malicious user to gain kernel access to the system. So kernel access, again, is the core operating system of that technology. If you do that, then you have pretty much access to the, the whole system and, and potentially the whole network. Now from now to answer the second part of what is the security issue of Meltdown, I would more reiterate kind of the things I mentioned before is these vulnerabilities are going to pop up all the time. And not to be, you know, uh, belittle or uh, downplay the, the impact or the severity of Meltdown, but you know, Heartbleed came out in 2014. Um, people got really spun up about that, but it didn't really apply to a lot of people, <laughs> depending on, you know, your, how your network was set up. Now, this goes into, as I mentioned before, uh, supply chain and asset management, understanding your IT environment, understanding how that IT environment interplays with your critical assets from uh, the data or people, and acting appropriately to this vulnerability that exists, right? So for example, if you have sensitive systems that hold very sensitive financial or IP related intellectual property data that have this vulnerability in place, then you should have a higher priority on shoring up the defenses against that, not waiting whatever time frame you have, you know, 30 to 60 days to patch a, a system. Uh, you, there should be a severity uh, uh, level and a, a, a process to quickly do that um, so you're not ex- uh, unnecessarily exposed, mm-hmm. right? So, again, not to downplay meltdown, but there's going to be another vulnerability that's going to pop up that's going to have a, a wide and, and, and a wide reach, uh, but really f- owning it into what is your asset management process, uh, having a good IT inventory t- tailored to the critical uh, aspects of your, your environment and what's important to you. Um, and being able to act, uh, you know, appropriately to defend against that is really the best defense because um, these are going to pop up, as I mentioned before. I think that's a f- very reasonable response. Mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of people respond to this by saying we got to throw out everything, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it started new. And as you point out, you know, there's there's going to be another hack. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a limited budget, sure. You know, uh, please uh, you know, wholesale changeover, but you're just going to keep wholesale changing over. And, uh, and so you got to kind of be more deliberate of your posture and uh, how you, um, in essence, categorize these things and, and, um, and act appropriately to when there's certain things that will impact what's really important to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me on. Uh, I really uh Great work on you guys to, to highlight these issues uh, for a broader audience. Um, happy to assist in where you think is appropriate. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh-huh.
As we have seen, cyber counterintelligence has become integral to modern cybersecurity. Be it in public or private sector, actors are taking steps to secure their data and identify adversaries. How they go about this is a continual reevaluation of a shifting landscape while applying an almost psychological approach in identifying adversaries and how they achieve their hacks. When you picture cyber counterintelligence, you likely have imagined an elite hacking team sabotaging adversaries. But in truth, it's much more nuanced. Cooperation is key in a more interconnected world, especially when overcoming the legal walls that come with tracing a hack. A continual theme of this podcast is that cybersecurity is not a discipline in isolation. Human intelligence and interaction has not gone out of the equation in tracing a hack, and it's likely to stay there. Well, at least until AI replaces us all. But that's a topic for another time. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCore program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.